0: Welcome to the Jonah Carey Podcast, friends. Thank you so much for tuning in. Guest today is Alex Speer. Alex is the beat writer covering the Boston Red Sox for the Boston Globe. The world champion. Boston Red Sox, great club. Congrats to them. Congrats to Alex. It's a long, long slog when you're a beat writer and your team goes to the World Series and I think he's got like two, three days of vacation all year long and he chose to spend 30 minutes of it talking to me, which I really appreciate. Uh, do check out Alice's work at The Boston Globe. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter, at Alex Spear. And uh, he also appears on Nesson Broadcast. He's really good. So when next season starts up, uh, just look out for that. It's really cool to see the Nesson Broadcast integrating Alex into it, and it's really great. And I think there's room for lots of writers to be doing that kind of stuff. Verducci in the booth was great when uh, Fox was doing that. And uh, there should be more of that in the industry. Because you know what? Writers have something to say. We always have something to say. So there you go. Uh, you will dig this. Lots of insight into Dave Dombrowski and Alex Cora and how to build a team. Lots of good conversation about bilingual managers, too. It's one of the things I'm fascinated by. I was thinking about floating some sort of feature or whatever about it, but now you know, it would have been ahead of the curve except that Cora's been hired and Charlie Montoyo is now the manager of the Blue Jays and what have you. But uh, there's a lot of meat on that bone. It's long overdue for the game to have way more managers of Latin descent because, gee, one-third of the players have the same background. You would think that you could find a manager who can relate, who also carries the same leadership skills and analytical skills and what have you. And Cora does that. Montoyo, certainly coming from the Rays culture, does that. Eduardo Perez, he should be the next guy. Uh, he's fantastic, has coaching experience. He'd be a great manager too. And uh, there's many more. So. Lots of talk about that. And uh, I think you'll dig this edition of the podcast. Some very fast programming notes. Uh, CBS Sports. Check out all my World Series content. You could just go to cbsports.com or just Google Jonah Carey CBS Sports and go back and read all my playoff stuff if you want. And then also... I just started a series, uh, which is going to be looking at one team per day leading up to the winter meetings. And the first piece hasn't gone up just yet at CBS Sports, but it will. Uh, we're starting East, so and we're just going alphabetical, so the Atlanta Braves will be the first team. We just finished that piece. And we'll take a look at what each of these teams has and uh, what we could expect maybe from this offseason and where they are in terms of building. We would not have predicted that the Braves would be this good this quickly, but lo and behold, they won the division, and they're going to be a threat for years to come, so that's fun. And uh could be some other teams like that, too. Keep an eye on the Padres. I'm just going to say, Padres could be an interesting club in 2019. If you had some gummy bears on a sleeper team, that might be the one. Granting that it's early. We're not even in November. But uh, that could be one. Anyway, go enjoy that. Go enjoy this edition of the Jonah Carry Podcast. It's with Alex Spear. All right, so this guy, you know, if we talk about the teams, right? The teams start in spring training, and they work out, and they play, and it's a day game after a night game, and then they got to go to Milwaukee in the rain, and then they got to go to Texas in the heat and all this stuff. Beat Raiders do this too, man. There's no rest for them. They're in there in the offseason, hot stove, winter meetings, spring training, regular season. They get, like, three days off a year. And I am interrupting <laughs> one of those three days right now uh, because this guy is awesome enough to give us his time. He uh, covers the Boston Red Sox, the world champion Boston Red Sox, for the Boston Globe and has been, uh, for many years, one of the absolute best in this business, continues to be that way. It's a pleasure to have Alex Spear on the podcast. Alex, how are you? Uh,
1: Jonah, I'm great, and you exaggerate. I get at least four days off, so oh, no, need to, no well, need to embellish.
0: Well, that's fine. Listen, if if there's going to be divorce, then I'll vouch for you. I, I, I appreciate the effort that you're making here, and, and we'll try to keep it nice and tight. <laughs> um, So there's lots of places that I want to go, but you know what it is about this team? Because I come from an analytical school or whatever, and we're going to get to Alex Cora and the players and all that stuff, I want to talk about Dombrowski. And I can remember the winter meetings a couple years ago. That winter, the Red Sox got Price, Kimbrell, Carson Smith, and I'm forgetting who the fourth guy was. And I was talking to John Shestakovsky at the time. I know you know Shesta very well. He used to be the oh. Red Sox PR guy. He's my friend in real life and has been – way I didn't even know he was a baseball guy. We're just like, oh, it turns out you work in the same industry. <laughs> and uh, now works the Hall of Fame great guy. And we were talking, and he said, isn't it funny that Dombrowski always gets his guys? And that stuck with me ever since, and I kind of felt that way before that – with the Expos, with the Marlins, every step of the way, if Dombrowski wants a guy, he gets it. And that could be a $217 million guy like Price. It could be trading four premium prospects for a closer like Kimbrel. Or, unfortunately, didn't work out with this guy, but going and getting Carson Smith at the time was a really dominant setup man. What is it about Dave Dombrowski where if he decides he wants a guy, he could just get him? Is it literally just I spend more money than anybody else? Or is there some power of will that enables him to do it? I think that, you know, there's,
1: there's a willingness in, there has been a willingness in a number of instances, uh, when dealing with a competitive bidding situation mm-hmm. to be really aggressive on the back end of something. So in, in the case of price, for instance, yeah. uh, the Red Sox were aware that the, that the Cardinals had been, you know, had kind of floated a figure of like $190 million. It looked like they were willing to push up to $200 million. Oh. There was awareness that, You know, there was awareness that, okay, if, if it's close, then maybe, you know, then maybe he could opt for the Cardinals. So they said, you know what? Let's make it. Let's, let's figure out what it takes to close this down. Yeah. I I think that Dombrowski has a very bottom line mentality about deals. What's it going to take to get it done? And a lot of times he's willing to, he's willing to be kind of aggressive at the back end of, of those commitments that maybe, Maybe other people fight over it. And I think that sometimes that can be to his detriment when you're talking about, uh, multiple four for one trades, for instance, for, you know, whether for Kimberl, yeah. uh, Kimbrough especially, you know, I, I think that there was, there was an attitude in the industry of, did you really need to include Washer. Logan Allen, yeah. who was the fourth guy in that deal? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and who looks like he has a chance to be a pretty good pitcher. Yep. Um, but at the same time, like the idea was, let's get the deal done and we can, you know, is Logan Allen replaceable? Probably. Yeah. Um, he's good, but he's replaceable.
0: Well, and they do that, you know, in the draft and on the international market too. And I grant you that now you've, everything is capped and it's a little more complicated. But if there is some way in which they need to go the extra mile, they will. This predates Dombrowski, but like, you know, the Red Sox have had something like this mentality before, where Mookie Betts, for instance, was a fifth-round pick, and he ended up signing for 750, which is more than you would expect, but they had to buy him out of the University of Tennessee. The Red Sox have been aggressive not only at the high-level major league level, but in building that farm system, and, you know, obviously the whole outfield is homegrown, but so's Joan Mancada. Joan Mancada was an above and beyond signing, and Joan Mancada, of course, led to Chris Sale. Chris Sale ended up with throwing the final out of the World Series. So there definitely is something there on that front. And what I argued, uh, you know, in kind of writing the capper for the season was, you know, that the Red Sox are scary because they're shades of the 90s Yankees here, that you have a team with the ultimate in resources they can spend to the moon because of Nesson, I say this unabashedly, but I always maintain that the Yankees and the Red Sox, particularly the Yankees, but even the Red Sox, could have a three hundred fifty million dollar payroll and probably turn a profit if they wanted to. They have an artificial cap in the industry for the luxury tax, so they choose to spend one ninety six point eight, and that's it. Mm-hmm. But the bottom line is that they can go out and do things. And once you establish a foundation, once you have Betts, Benatendi, Bogarts, Bradley, uh, the young guys, then you can go out and buy a whole new far- uh, pitching staff because none of those guys are home. not sale, not price. Not Evaldi, not any of those guys are homegrown, neither is Kimbrell, neither is whoever, and now it's when you get scary, that when you look at the Yankees, it's fundamentally Pettit and Posada and Jeter and Rivera and so on, and then it's, okay, now we can go get O'Neill and Brocious and whoever eventually Clemens, whoever we want, because we have the cost-controlled talent, and so even though you could have said this about the Cubs after 2016 and the Astros in 2017, it makes me think, Oh crap, like maybe the Red Sox are going to go on a run here. Four and 15 years is kind of approaching a dynasty by modern standards, but maybe we're going to see a true dynasty where it's three and four years, four and six, something like that. Where do you assess this team coming off of this, given their homegrown talent that's relatively cheap and given their ability to go get more stuff? The homegrown
1: talent isn't going to be that cheap anymore because they're, they're closer to the end of their arbitration eligibility than the beginning. Mm -hmm. So. This is the phase in which in which those guys get expensive enough that uh that they that there's opportunity that there are some opportunity costs, some of the flexibility goes by the wayside. Yeah. They are going to be getting, you know, Hanley comes off the books this year, Kimbrell, Pomerance are off the books. So uh so that's a pretty sizable nugget that you're talking about. You know, you're you're upwards of forty million that's coming off the books, but there are going to be some pretty big raises. Coming for the uh, for the Red Sox homegrown core yeah. this year, yeah. basically all of which, save for Benintendi and is arbitration eligible. Yeah. Um And the other thing that I that I, I guess you know, I think that they have a really good talent base, right? That was very obvious over the course of this year. And it was the foundation of it was homegrown. The foundation of it was that they had this tremendous financial flexibility because they were getting incredible return on the dollar from the Mookie Betts and the Xander Bogarts and the yes. Jackie Bradley's of the world. Um, but I, I think that, you know, there's, there's a lot of, there, there's a lot of financial efficiency. There's a lot of uh, marketplace efficiency on the part of some of those other teams with excellent cores, whether it's the Astros, whether it's the Yankees, yes. uh, Or whether it's you know whether it's the Cubs for that matter the you know the Dodgers have (laughs) the Dodgers are going to be in a pretty good operating position and the other thing is we can we can never underestimate how hard it is physically to repeat Hmm. playing those full seven months to me is. You know, I I don't know how like, but it, it feels like now that there are three rounds of playoffs that it's truly underappreciated. Uh, the the cost of that of that sort of run on what happens the following season.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. You know, I I think that we see it in the in an Altuve who was you know such a dy- uh such a dynamo for the Astros mm-hmm. in 2017, and he was playing on one leg down the stretch this year. And so I, I just think that you find that. You know, not, I, I I looked at this a decade ago when the Red Sox were coming off their 2007 World Series. Haven't looked at it since then, but I would guess that what you see is a significant uh, physical toll of one of those deep October runs that makes it really hard to repeat in that uh, in that immediate year. So, um, so you know, I, I think that they have they have the talent base. Whether or not they have the good fortune and the health and that sort of thing, I'm, I'm not sure.
0: Well, and it would behoove the Sox, but going by that logic, and I completely agree with you, by the way. To specifically look at pitching, that if they're gonna spend the $40 million, it's acknowledging that David Price was worked to the freaking bone in the playoffs. And to, to his credit, absolutely passed every test of flying colors, whatever narratives have been thrown in the junk. But there's subtle stuff, like, okay, let's say Evaldi's a free agent, fine, you worked him hard. But is Joe Kelly gonna answer the bell like he did in 2018? I have my doubts. Is Matt Barnes? Matt Barnes pitched every game of the LCS. Those guys, you know, not the superstars necessarily. But those like high leverage relievers, someone like Price who got worked hard. If I'm the socks, I'm flooding the zone, not only with, you know, trying to get a big ticket pitcher or two, but I'm trying to get a bunch of guys. I throw a bunch of, and I don't mean to be impersonal about it, but I throw a bunch of spaghetti against the wall yeah. and just load up on arms, stick them in triple th- A, whatever, you know, give them two way contracts where, hey, you know, normally you'd make 500k with another team, but with us, you'll make two uh because 202 million that is because we feel that we're going to need as many arms as possible seems to me that that might be a way to safeguard against this regression is that position players are one thing but you only have so many bullets in an arm that seems to be the point at which i would be the most worried
1: well, I think that, they, and that's that's where the the chief attrition normally takes place the yeah. year after a uh, after a World Series. Um So, yeah, I and let's let's face it, the the reason why the Red Sox ended up having so much impact from this quote unquote rover strategy yeah. was because they weren't as deep in middle relief as some of the other teams in the postseason. Yeah. So, I, I think that they were inevitably looking at adding at adding particularly to uh middle relief there's a question that that'll exist about the back end of the rotation um depending on whether or not they view Stephen wright as being uh, a reliable contributor for it in uh for it next year yep. they have a couple of prospects coming on the middle relief, uh, on the middle um on the kind of like really good stuff setup man yep. uh, type trajectories um in darwinson hernandez and, uh, in Durbin Feltman, their, uh, their third round pick this year. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think that, I, I think that they, they kind of took this year off from adding, uh, from adding name relievers. They got Ryan Brazier, which was a huge fine for them mm-hmm. and changed a lot for them in, in October. And that was a minor league deal at the minimum. But, um, whether or not they can roll sevens on that again, I'm not sure.
0: Uh, by the way, my wife and I are expecting a child soon, and oh. Darwin's in is now under contention. I'm just going to say it right. Darwin's in <laughs> carry really rolls off the tongue. I like it a lot. I'm just going to say that right now. Uh, we talk about the physical challenge, but we got to get to the mental, too. And, you know, obviously this narrative is going to come up because he's a first-year manager. The team just won 108 freaking games of the World Series. But I know Alex Cora a little bit. I worked with him at baseball tonight. We sat in the green room night after night. For seven hours, watching God knows what, the Twins and the Padres, and then we're going to come on at 1.30 in the morning, and the guy's fresh, and the guy's bringing the knowledge and all that, and of course, it's massively different to sit in Bristol than it is to manage personalities, but you get a feel for a person after a while, and he is a level-headed, smart guy who knows how to relate to people, and when you know people ask me, hey, what does it take to get a good manager, who do you think the so-and-so should hire, I say... Gosh, it's hard for me to say because I'm not the one doing the interviewing, but the type of person that I would want, I don't even care that much about analytics because I guarantee you the bench coach knows analytics and I guarantee you the front office is going to bring stuff downstairs anyway. You don't even need to worry about that stuff. Find Just, a guy, I'll, I'll disagree, but you can continue. Well, yeah. And options. I want to hear about your disagreement too. So let's start with the, let's start with the connecting with players. Is this core thing sort of post hoc explanation and the Red Sox had a really good team and therefore they won or does this guy have a way of relating to players that truly stands out to you?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think that uh, I mean I think that the talent base was exceptional, championship caliber. Uh, and but I, I do think that Alex Cora's ability uh, to relate to the modern player, and on top of that, to integrate, uh, to be able to you know to integrate analytics into the culture of the Red Sox yep. and their daily preparations uh, was enormous. Like there was great buy-in from the players. To the world of analytics, there have been guys who have been kind of more conservatively minded, mm. um, or distrustful in the past. Terrell. And I think that Cora and his staff, his staff deserves considerable amount yes. of credit, but Cora is so casual and so yes. comfortable in talking about things like, you know, like a player's, you know, hard hit percentage or like his, yes. you know, like he was in, early in the season when Jackie Bradley's struggling, he was like, you know, like look at your exit velocities, your top 10, you know, you're, you're no longer swinging and missing. Your swing miss rate is really good. Like, you're doing all the things that we want in terms of quality of contact. Don't sweat it. You're going to be fine. And then he got an 850 OPS from Jackie Bradley Jr. over the last, you know, three and a half months mm. of the season. Um, he, he's really, really good at taking different types of information and turning it into normal baseball conversation. And in so doing, he is able to unlock, uh, he was able to uh, help unlock some of the power of that information in a way that it really, really helped. Uh, some of the Red Sox players like conversations about, you know, about doing, da- you know, talking about like getting the ball in the air and fly ball rates in a simple, you know, in a simple fashion of do da, doing damage, yeah. um, is, you know, he's, he's really, he's, he's really good at connecting to them and helping them understand, uh, what they have to do in order to get better as opposed to talking about, you know, in order, as opposed to talking about, well, you know, maybe you should have been a little bit more ready for a first pitch. Like, it's like, you should have been looking for a first pitch that was in the upper third of the zone. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, or that was, depending on the guy, like lower third of the zone, whatever spot in the zone that you can drive off the wall. And, uh, you know, I, I think that he, he is very, very relatable, not just for the Red Sox players, but also for their front office because mm. of the languages he speaks. Um, he's bilingual, but he's more of a polyglot because, He's capable of speaking everyone's language in a way that makes them comfortable and in a way that's able to get um, to get to draw useful information from people who he's working with while also being able to uh, to disseminate useful information to the people who are playing for him.
0: Well, it's interesting, too, because, it you know, we see this all the time that people come out of the TV realm and that, you know, I don't want to make it too much about that show, but like. Hmm. That's where Boone came from, too. Eddie Perez, Eduardo Perez, pretty good chance he gets a job. Now, is that correlation or causation? Because you come out of that stuff, and if you work at a place like ESPN, there's so much available to you. They have a whole stats and info department that if you come on air and you want to do a swing demo and you're Doug Glanville or Eduardo Perez or, or Aaron Boone or Alex Cora, you have that information. But if you want the data, it is there. And, you know, I wonder, is it that people – that front offices look at these guys and, and obviously Cora has so much other experience. He was a bench coach for the freaking World Series champions. But for the, the way,
1: Astros, a data driven organization.
0: Data driven right? organization, sure. But the fact that, you know, so many of these TV guys seem to end up in deals. I, the Cora and Boone thing just tripped me out and, and Eduardo will be a great manager if he's a manager. I wonder if there's something there that people recognize. Okay. Not only can he talk a good game on camera or whatever, but he seems to get it. It's, you, you almost have to be. I will say John Cruck and Kurt Schilling worked on that show too. So maybe it doesn't go all the way, but, you know, it seems like there's a, there's a certain something that can instill you with the kind of conversational readiness that, okay, then you have to go and sit with Dave Dombrowski. Well, of course you're going to be comfortable because you've already, you've done it with whoever, you've done it, you know, in front of cameras, you have, you're instilled with both the personability and the ability to, you know, process information. It's, it's all there for you to a certain extent.
1: I would just like to offer the uh, the tangent that uh, that correlation and causation should be like a title of something. Uh, correlation,
0: the, I think, fantastic. I love it. Really good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah play, but, dad uh, jokes. As two dads, we can relate. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um I, I think that I think that you're on to something because I really it's a question of coming into an or coming into a managerial job understanding how an organization works yeah, and how yeah. the information flow works. And to whom you can relate within an organization. And so yes, when you're getting, uh, when you're getting kind of the background to prepare for a broadcast or for a show, um, then that, that opens something up. If you're working with a, with a a kind of you know, statistics or, or analytics department at ESPN. That's, that's relevant precedent. I, I think that it's not as relevant as the precedent, uh, that was established with the Astros Completely. because that gave him a, a pretty clear idea of what kinds of positions he would want in the, in the Red Sox organization from an analytics standpoint, how he would want advanced scouting information presented. Um, as opposed to, you know, he wanted, he wanted to have a video advanced scout as opposed to having, um, as opposed to having, for instance, an a, a, an advanced scout who was on the road following mm, the team. Mm, so, mm. Um, so I, I think that there are, you know, there there is some practical value of it. I I, I also wonder whether or not, you know. Alex Cora was in a better more comfortable position to be a first year manager than Boone because he had that uh, that experience inside of the Astros organization.
0: And ma- and managing in Puerto Rico and stuff too. Boone just didn't have that background. Doesn't mean Boone can't become a good manager. Cora just had a head start, no question.
1: Yeah, and he also had the roster building component in Puerto Rico as well because he was the yes. GM of team
0: Puerto Rico. Absolutely. There's no doubt about that. The bilingual element is interesting too. I can remember going back about 3 months and it was reported in Toronto media that, uh, that the J, the J, that John Gibbons was gonna be gone at the end of the season, mm-hmm. and I love Gibby, but okay, that happened. And then yeah. that they were gonna hire somebody bilingual, and sure enough they hired Charlie Montoyo, who absolutely climbed every rung of that ladder in the Tampa Bay Rays organization. I mean, he earned it. He, you know, managed everywhere. Different kind of coach. What what, per, what portion of the extra
1: 2% was he worth?
0: He was probably worth, I would say, well, it's only 2%, so it's gotta be a percentage of 2% is not very high. <laughs> but he's mentioned in the book, no question. I can remember talking sure. about Charlie with, you know, Andrew Friedman, people like that, and, and that he was somebody who could come up and have a future. And now that we've seen, it starts starting to happen that we've got two guys in the AL East alone, you know, who come from Latin American descent? It's like, well, what the hell took so long? you know i i I grew up as a fan with Felipe alou, who absolutely you know could speak the language of literally and figuratively of all the different factions in the clubhouse, but that would seem to be so obvious, and you can't help but think that there's a little bit of institutional bias for whatever reason, that maybe people just don't even do it on purpose, but they hire people who are like them or whatever. But this seems to me that the template should be really clear right now, that you've got, and Eduardo Perez could be the next guy down the pike, for all we know, or somebody like that, that if it's somebody with playing experience, with coaching experience, analytically grounded, and oh, by the way, he speaks the language of literally one-third of the players in the game that the other managers do not. How on earth would you not hire this guy? If anything, you've got to come up with a gargantuan argument to beat out the next Alex Cora for a job. I'm kind of surprised it took this long. If anything, it
1: really is—it really is surprising. I think that you know you you do wonder whether or not there was. Well, I, I I would say that it's a huge advantage to be able to have at the top level of your field staff someone who is able to relate to every player on the roster. Yeah. Cora was remarkable at that as a player. Um, he was, you know, he was he and Mike Lowell, who were both bilingual, yes. uh, were phenomenal bridge guys in the Red Sox clubhouse. Uh, Cora in 2005 to 2008, Lowell from 2006 to what 2000 uh, 2010, um, and it was the impact that they could make uh, was enormous. And Terry Francona recognized it well enough that he used them both as kind of deputies. Um, in a way to, you know, to, they, they were, they were really good at helping him out in, uh, in times when he, you know, if he had a, if he had a, if there was, if there was something that he was trying to get across and like wanted to reinforce it with someone who would be speaking the native language of a player and, you know, of a Spanish speaking player, he could rely on them to do it. Um, and I think that the, the value of, again, we're dealing with a, with a generation of young stars, who really can use a coaching staff that's able to relate to them? Yeah. Um, and I think that the more you know, the the more life experiences that are provided in order to be able to do that, uh, I you know, I, I think that there's a, a clearer benefit to teams. Um, and I'll take the example of like Rafael Devers. You know, he he struggled at various points this year. Um, last year, I feel like Devers at times almost seemed, you know, there were there were members of the there were members of you know, Spanish speaking members of the Red Sox coaching staff. But the ability of literally everyone on kind of every layer of the Red Sox management team to relate to Devers this year mm. um, seemed to really help him to evolve and make progress as a player. Um, he he learned a lot over the course of this year, and I think that it it can only be helpful if you have a guy who arrives in the majors as a 20 year old to feel like he's able to connect with with everyone who he's trying to please.
0: Right, and, well, and it's not just language, too. It's if you're playing in Portland, Maine, or in Boston. It's just not the same thing as, you know, if your country of origin is just completely other, you know, and, and that's the thing about culture. And, two, you know, I've been in a bunch of clubhouses, and you see the way that things are laid out. You know, you've got – typically it's okay. You've got the six, eight middle relievers all congregate. They have their lockers next to each other. And then you've got maybe the stars are on this side. And, a man, like I cannot remember thinking of a clubhouse – Where the Latin born players are not clustered together. It's just always that way. You've got those guys sitting next to each other, and it's okay to have cliques or groups or whatever. Obviously, you would not ever, you know, if you work at IBM, you're not gonna be friends with everybody too. But it seems to me there's something about bridging the gap. And I can remember last year when the Astros won it all, that people made a big deal about Alex Bregman, who's not only a great ball player. The yeah. dude was really making an effort to speak Spanish, not his native yeah. tongue, and really went out there. And I would say that the next, let's say, market inefficiency could be not only hiring a Cora, but if you draft somebody from Iowa, stick him in Spanish lessons in addition to having him take batting practice, because when he gets to the majors and he's got to deal with, you know, uh Mr. Ramirez, who's the cleanup hitter, and Mr. Hernandez, who's the closer, he'll be well-equipped and clubhouse chemistry could improve. I think that that is an investment the team should be making.
1: Well the Red Sox for a number of years have had their uh, have had their draft their you know a handful or so of draftees uh, going to their Dominican instructional league yeah uh, in order to be able to just you know create greater empathy honestly mm. between players and so that they can understand what it's like to be uh, to be in a clubhouse where they're the ones not speaking the native language
0: yeah no I like that a lot it makes a lot of sense to me um so I guess I want to ask you now it's interesting from a writer's perspective you were saying to me Hey, you know what? We got to make this short or whatever. Family stuff, but also I got to figure out what's going on with the parade. How does one cover a parade? (laughs) I mean, you know, you got it down, okay? You're going into clubhouse. You're going to ask the manager some questions. You're going to ask uh, whatever the second baseman some questions. How do you write a good parade story? How do you write something that? And by the way, after eight months or, or really all year of being on the beat, but you're going to come up with one last hurrah maybe before you take a day off or two. What is the angle that you write to make it so that people really feel the impact of a parade? Beyond, yeah, there was a lot of duck boats, and then that was the end of it. Yeah,
1: yeah. well, the the beat writers are uh, are afforded the opportunity to not go on the parade. Okay, uh, that's good. So we we have access to the players on the field before they okay. you know, to some of the players, and so for us, uh, it became very easy today because David Price said that he will not be using exercising his opt out um, and instead yep. staying in Boston. Not a great surprise, but nonetheless. It qualifies as news. And so, uh, and so, um, I, I suppose as a beat writer, that's, that's more your focus. Whereas, you know, whereas the dynamics of a, a team's relationship to the city, while it, while it's kind of relevant to how a beat writer proceeds, like it's it, at a newspaper, it's the purview of other people, right? Who are, um, whose focus is the city.
0: Yeah. So the final question I have for you is about the way that you're integrated into broadcasts on Ness. And I love it. It's great. You know, and it, it's, it's, it's something that makes a lot of sense because writers can obviously bring a lot to bear. You have a lot of knowledge. You're somebody who's personable and smart. You can hang, no problem. What do you do to try to blend in? Because the play-by-play guy has his role, and if it's Eck or whoever, you know, the color commentator is somebody who chewed tobacco for 15 years and does it a certain way, what do you do to try to bring something to the broadcast that they don't have while still fitting into the culture so that Red Sox fans are like, oh, I like this Alex guy. That's cool.
1: Um- I guess uh, a, a couple of things like, so first of all, like I, I feel really lucky that I get to have these baseball conversations in the middle of games. It's, it's yeah. just fundamentally cool. Right. Like, and it locks you into the game itself in a way that um, in a way that you don't necessarily experience it when you're like sitting in the press box and, and writing during right. half of the game. So, um, and so then if you're operating from that genuine, like from that position of like genuine interest in what's happening and, um and also in, in kind of, exchanging ideas right like you know i like i i feel very lucky to be able to learn a lot about baseball from guys like jerry remy who spent their lives in the game who spent his life in the game and a guy like eck who's you know just amazing like between his experiences um and his you know and his passion for the game and his, his his uh awareness of details of it you know if you're if you're receptive to that and just kind of figuring out ways of like of of exchanging of, of exchanging information and chat and talking about what's happening in front of you then you know then hopefully it's an okay conversation that doesn't get in the way of the broadcast because you don't want to get you don't want to interrupt the flow of what those guys are doing when you're not in there yeah. um and that hopefully does add you know add a layer cuz I the way that I see the game is going to be different than how someone who came up in the game is, is going to see it in all likelihood um doesn't mean I'm right um, but hopefully it means that there's a, there's a different way of discussing or looking at something that I can add that that adds a layer onto onto the already great foundation of information that they're providing. So um I guess you know I guess passion about what you're doing and uh and um humility that I, I say a lot of I say
0: a lot of stuff that's wrong too. So <laughs> um so
1: try to pay attention and, and learn from them.
0: Alex Spear, you're a gentleman and a scholar. Go enjoy your last twelve hours of vacation and I appreciate you coming on the show. <laughs>
1: Appreciate it. Candy for everyone, Jonah. Thank you.